In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Pentecost. Pentecost is a noun. Strong and clear, confident of its identity, able to stand up in any room and say what it is. That's what nouns are. That's what nouns do. Pentecost, an early harvest festival celebrated by many different people, including the Jews, who co-opted it as a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Pentecost, the birthday of the church, a festival celebrated 50 days after Easter. Pentecost is a noun, clear-eyed, level-headed, certain of its identity. It's when you make Pentecost into an adjective that it grows anxious and nervous sort of standing on one foot and then the other, running around looking for a noun to modify, but not sure exactly what it means. The adjective, of course, is Pentecostal. We don't admit that we don't know. We just go ahead and use the word and assume that we know. Did you know that her friend is Pentecostal? Really? really is a word that you use when you want to pretend that you understand. Hmm, she seems like a nice person. How is your church going? Well, I'm not sure. We've only been there about a year, and we have a fairly large Pentecostal element. Really? A few years ago, one of my favorite preachers, Fred Craddock, was asked to give a lecture. This was out on the West Coast. And before he began the lecture, one of the students stood up and said, before you speak, I need to know if you're Pentecostal. The room went silent. Fred thought for a moment. He said, are you asking if I'm a member of a Pentecostal church? I'm asking if you're Pentecostal. Did you want to know if I'm Charismatic? No, I want to know, are you Pentecostal? Do you want to know if I speak in tongues? I want to know if you're Pentecostal. Fred said, well, then I'm not sure I understand your question. He said, well, then you're obviously not Pentecostal. And he left. (laughs) What are we talking about? In spite of the fact that the church doesn't know what the adjective means, the church insists that it remain in our vocabulary as an adjective, not just a noun. And let's be honest, Pentecost is sort of a difficult day to warm up to, even with all this red and talk about fire. I mean, Christmas has a beautiful story about shepherds and wise men, and Easter, of course, has an empty tomb, and the, the, the wonderful news, he is risen. But really, what is the good news of Pentecost? How do you warm up to the idea of hurricane force winds? And even more, it is a day that is bound to inflict on you an inferiority complex. I mean, what kind of church was this first Pentecostal church of Jerusalem anyway? I say Pentecostal because 
to my knowledge, no Presbyterians have ever been accused of looking drunk when they come out of church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so the disciples are gathered all together in this room. They're celebrating a Jewish festival when what to their wondering eyes should appear but something like a Kansas twister, throwing dust in the air and pulling up everything that is not nailed down. They grabbed the pillars and the posts and they hung on for dear life. In a matter of seconds, it was totally awesome. There were tongues of fire dancing over their heads and singeing their very eyebrows. About the same time, it was incredible, um, these Galileans started speaking in foreign languages. These were Galileans, sort of the youpers of Israel, mind you. They're not well-educated types, and they're not speaking gibberish. They're speaking in real languages of the Medes and the Elamites and the Parthians, all those other names that liturgists don't want to have to pronounce. And incidentally, this is exactly what happens if you don't show up at the first meeting for liturgists in the fall. Lynn... Dunkerley assigns to you the Pentecost reading. <laughs> Some dismiss this as a bunch of drunks getting home from a Royal Oak bar crawl, I mean a Jerusalem bar crawl. But others had the wit to pay attention, and Peter, never one to miss an opportunity to preach, Peter pulls up a soapbox and begins to deliver a, a truly remarkable sermon, quoting the scripture and interpreting current events and even offering an altar call. I told you this was not a Presbyterian church. And can you believe it? 3,000 converts were baptized that very day. And Luke says they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles and to the breaking of bread now, that is great stuff. But in all honesty, it does make me feel like my life and ministry has been sort of mashed potatoes. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember any sermon that I ever gave, any anthem that the choir ever sang, any adult ed program that we ever did, uh, causing even a tenth of that number of people to be baptized all at once. I mean, how do you live up to something like that? And how come the Holy Spirit isn't blowing around in most of the churches we know that way? You know, the average Presbyterian congregation is under 200 members in this country. The average worship attendance on a Sunday, whatever denomination you are a part of, is not more than 60 or 65 people. Churches are lucky to have three baptisms in a year. Most choirs would be happy to have four people who could sing harmony. <laughs> Budgets are always tight. Our experience of church is just tamer and less windblown than that first Pentecost community. So where are the vibrations of the spirit that we can see, the breezes and the fire in the church that we know? Well, it was Tom Long from Emory University, who really opened up this story for me. And a lot of how I understand it these days is picked from his pocket. He says that Pentecost is written 
under Luke's hand as a kind of burlesque, as a kind of comedy and exaggeration of everything that took place, written in the hyperbole and the overstatement of a local church history. I'm not talking here about the leather-bound centennial kind of church history. I'm talking about the other kind. You know this. The kind that is written by a retired school teacher on a typewriter, someone who had the time to go back and look at old session notes and interview some of the old timers in the church. And then it is lovingly edited and it is printed on the church mimeograph machine. Remember mimeograph machines? And it is stapled together with a picture of the church building on the front by Miss Ada Williams. The story of Pentecost is written as history, but it is history seen through the eyes of faith. It is so much like our church histories that bear phrases like, by the grace of God, we built the Memorial Hall and dedicated it in 1912. Or, moved by the spirit, Ms. Craig opened the choir to volunteers, and on that first Thursday night, so many people came forward that they ran out of black chairs, and many had to be turned away. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> All right, it's a little exaggerated. But how else do you capture God's spirit moving among us who are so human in this very human institution. One of the things that I know from my own experience and from talking to my colleagues is that when you go to a new church, almost always there is some legend who has preceded you there. This is true not only of church professionals, it is also true of lay leaders in the church. There's always somebody of gigantic proportions who has done more for that church than anyone ever had or anyone ever will. I had this friend who was a director of music uh, at a church in Wilmington, uh, Delaware. The first organist of that church served there for 53 years until he died in his mid-80s, probably at the console. <laughs> his name is permanently emblazed on a bronze plaque commemorating all those years, right there on the console. Now, those were 53 years that were likely uh, more fondly remembered by some than by others. Um, and I had to sympathize with my friend himself, a very gifted organist, that every Sunday he has to look at this gold plaque right in front of him. I didn't blame him that he always knelt the hymn book right on that gold <laughs> plaque. Still, no one would deny that this organist was a legend and that God was at work in his life, human though he was. Church histories never tell you that while God moved the congregation to expand the parking lot, the vote was really 153 to 150 or that it took four years rather than the three they had planned to, uh, to pay it off. Rarely do they say that when Mrs. Wingate retired as president 
president of the Women's Association after so many years that someone had to ask her behind the scenes to step down. Now, this is not to say that we don't record things accurately or that we dress them up. It is simply to say that sometimes, looking back, we see the hand of God at work in and among us in ways that we may not have seen at the time. So there may be some playfulness and some nostalgia in the way Luke records it. For example, the list of people who were gathered from around the world, whose languages were being spoken. Among them were the Medes and the Elamites, both of which would have had to travel not only several hundred miles to get to Jerusalem, but also several hundred years, having previously disappeared from the landscape of history long before the birth of Jesus. This is Luke's way of describing not only the experience of the church in Jerusalem that day, but of the church in years to come, which through the Holy Spirit would witness the gathering of people from all nations, from every corner of the earth and every period in history. So men and women will gather from east and west, north and south, to sit at table in the kingdom of God. And what about the languages spoken? Well, why not? Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan city. Kathy and I just came back from the Grand Canyon, sitting there watching people. I heard about 12 languages spoken at the same time. People from all over might have been there. But more importantly, in time, God's mighty acts would be recorded in every language, on every continent. Luke doesn't want us to miss the point that all kinds of people that were gathered that day, would that would only be the first representation of the Holy Spirit's work. How would you tell the story of how God was involved in your life or here among us? How would you do that? I wonder how many of you have read the Blessings book that is sitting in the uh, south, what is it, the southwest entranceway of the church. We put it together years ago. Maggie Pringle lovingly put that together. It's filled with all kinds of ways that the Spirit is involved in our lives. Would you, for example, talk about Jesus' words, let the children come to me, and how they were manifested in a bunch of kids at vacation Bible school, bounding up this center aisle, singing the song Agadu, and other theologically completely inappropriate songs in the sanctuary. Or how um, they bounded down the stairs to remember their baptism uh, as they threw water balloons at each other made by the Barish boys who were in charge of recreation. Would you remember Jesus' words, as I have loved you, you should love one another, remembering the person who came to visit you in the hospital? or in the rehab center, or the deacons who lovingly prepared a meal for your family when you had lost someone precious to you? Would you recall Jesus' words about being the salt of the earth as you found yourself on a team of greenfielders just last week renovating a home for somebody in Southfield who you didn't even know, whose family had fallen on hard times? 
Would you hear yourself as the light of the world as you fed people down at Crossroads Soup Kitchen? I think about you, our confirmands. Incidentally, one of the brightest confirmation groups uh, in the many years uh, that I have had. And thinking about how God's spirit will be involved in your life. It will rarely be a gale force wind that will knock you over. Much more often than not, it will be like a gentle breeze. It will nudge you to do something or to think about something in a different way. And much more often than not, you will look back on your life like you're looking in the rearview mirror and you will say, oh, that was God involved in my life because that's just the way it works. But if you are open and if you are waiting, you can be sure the Spirit of God will continue to be involved in your life. For all that has gone before, whether it is in this church or the church, glorious as it may be and honored and remembered by us is nothing compared to the church that is coming into being. That's what Luke is trying to say in this Pentecost story, that the church and you and me are being transformed. Not just the church long ago and far away, but the church here and now, the church you are serving, the church that you are. And these are just the signs and the wonders of an age that is yet to come, where there will be music and there will be dancing and there will be singing and praise and more love and forgiveness than you and I have ever known. And God's spirit will be poured out on all people and there will be no more need for church because all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. You want to know when will this be and how will this happen? I can only tell you what I see and what I believe. And that is that from where I stand, some six feet here above you, I may see something that you don't get to see where you're sitting. And that is that over the years, I have seen tongues of fire resting right over your heads, maybe not burning you, but warming you and inspiring you, causing you to be warmth givers, illuminating your way, causing you to be light bearers and warmth givers. The Spirit of God is alive in you and among you, enlivening these bodies and this body. Happy birthday, church. The Spirit of God is within you and among you. Amen. Amen.